Good evening, everybody. Good to see you. I'm glad you're here, that you were not one of the many struck down by the plague that has quickly moved to the campus. Some of you have survived the plague and come back, I see. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are sick right now, and uh, maybe some of you are, so keep your germs to yourself. Anyhow, we're, we really are glad you're here, and this semester we're studying Philippians, a study in joy, if you will. And uh, we've been asking how you can find and retain joy in a world that goes flat. And we've been talking for the last few weeks about some of the things about reality that deflate our joy. The reality of suffering, the reality of death and injustice. And today we're going to talk about disappointment with people. How we're often disappointed by people. They let us down. And uh, most often uh, we are disappointed by, I believe, ourselves. Especially as Christians. If you're here as a Christian, you've often been disappointed in yourself. And it raises this really important question. When you're striving for joy, how can you find it and keep it when the one thing in this whole world that you seem to have the most control over, which is your life, is often a cause of disappointment to you? You understand how difficult that is? How can you keep joyful... How can you be joyful in a a world in which the one thing that you seem to have the most control of, your own conduct, your own life, is also something that often disappoints you? Our text is Philippians 1, 27-24. Follow along as I read. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. All right, let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for this word. We have here things that are hard, beautiful, but hard. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see a way forward to becoming these kind of people. Lord, uh, sharpen our minds. We're tired. The semester has begun in earnest. We're not sleeping. We're a little sick. We need your strength. We also need your spirit to work, to open up our minds, not only to comprehend, but even to believe uh, what we're reading today. Lord Jesus, be gracious to show us more of yourself, we ask. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Right after college, which for me was a long time ago, 15 years ago to be exact, I uh, went to Ukraine for a summer, and on my way I met a man named Dan. Dan was like me, recently out of college, and we actually rendezvoused um, in Austria. And uh, I was part of a mission trip for a summer, very humbly going over, realizing I didn't know much about how to be a missionary. I was going to go and spend a year, actually a summer, Uh, in Ukraine, learning what it looked like to be a part of the missions team, learning about the gospel, and sharing the faith, what I knew of it. And Dan was a teammate. And I met him in the airport, and it was sort of strange, because the first time I met him, he seemed very 
insecure. And that's strange because Dan is one of the best looking, most athletic, socially adept people I know. Dan was a preseason All-American linebacker. We went to the gym regularly. I would be bench pressing 185 pounds barely. He would be bench pressing 400 pounds regularly. It's good for me. And um, he was friendly, good looking, and uh, he had grown up in the church and uh, seemed like a great guy. He seemed like a good Christian fellow, the kind of guy that would go on a mission trip. But as the summer unfolded and I got to know Dan more and I heard more of his story as things began to come out, uh, this is not at all what Dan's life was really like. He actually had an uncommonly messy life. Uh, the reason he was so insecure the first time I'd met him was because he was trying to hide a cigarette. He was, a, he was an ashamed smoker. And uh, he thought he would be judged. And frankly, I don't think smoking is one of the great sins of the world. Um, but he certainly did. And uh, he was ashamed, and I didn't even notice. But that was the least of his problems. He was a habitual gambler with a large debt while going to a Christian college. He had a beautiful Christian girlfriend that he loved a lot, but that didn't keep him from cheating on her. And he also had cheated his way, not just through college, but also high school, middle school, and elementary school. He did not know how to be a student without cheating. All these things were a part of Dan's life. Which raises the point, maybe one point, at which most Christians and cynics of Christianity can agree, Christians are not always who they're supposed to be. Christians are not always the kind of people they're supposed to be. Whether they're supposed to be faithfulness, integrity, selflessness, love. As a corporate body, as a fellowship, there should be unity. Instead, there's often fractures, faithlessness, and the same kind of selfish ambition and selfishness that characterizes everyone else in the world. Why is that? Now, there are lots of plausible explanations for this. Um, But we'll assume that the person that's messy like this really thinks they're a Christian. Well, two possible explanations are Christianity does not work. Like other religions in the world, it's a wonderful soother of the human conscience, an opiate to the masses, but it doesn't really do anything to change anything. That's one possibility. And I said again, there's many possibilities. I can't talk about them all. A second is that what most people are familiar with in regards to Christianity and what most people try in regards to Christianity is not indeed Christianity, but a bad representation of it, a diminutive expression of it. And therefore, it produces misunderstanding about what Christianity is all about. And it doesn't produce the kind of uncommonly beautiful life that Christians should have. Instead, it presents and produces a distorted version, often very ugly and hypocritical. And that's my contention tonight. That much of what is assumed to be Christianity is not indeed Christianity, but a faux representation. And that Christianity offers to us an uncommon logic that when embraced produces in our lives an uncommonly beautiful life. That the uncommon life that Christians are called to in fact can only be produced by the good news of Jesus. Tonight we're going to talk about the uncommon life that Christians are called to and then go back and talk about the uncommon logic or the uncommon gospel. So the first, the uncommon life that Christians are called to. And uh, the reality is that Christians are called 
to be more than just good people. There's supposed to be a quality in nature to their life that exceeds that of just being good, nice people. I grew up in the South where the most important thing was to be a nice person. So I was in trouble because I'm not a very nice person. Just not nice. I don't do nice very well. I might love you. I might even be kind. I might serve you, but I am not nice. Sorry. I know, brother. You should move to the South. Um, but not yet. Um, Christ, the Christian, Christianity requires more than just being a good person, a nice person. It requires something different than that. It requires, actually, fruits that can only be produced by Christianity, by the gospel. And we're going to look at three facets of the Christian life in this text. We can look at more that make the Christian life uncommon, both difficult and beautiful. I think exceedingly beautiful. First is that the Christian life is supposed to be comprehensive. And you get it right off the bat in chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And it's a very interesting expression, actually. Only, sort of meaning, I've only really got one important thing to say to you, so pay attention. Just one thing, guys. Philippians, I love you. I really love you. I have high hopes for you. Just one thing. That one thing is, everything you do, everything about you, the entirety of your life should be lived in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. It should be comprehensive. All of you, all in for him. There should be a comprehensiveness of the Christian life. That's You're not just a Christian in RUF. You're not just a Christian on Sunday mornings. You're not just a Christian when you vote, for goodness sakes. Whatever the case may be, it is supposed to color the entirety of your life. And this is actually really, really hard. You actually, if you're a Christian in the room, and even if you're not, you can imagine this. This is really hard everywhere in, in life. It's really hard in college. Um, because you're actually trying to please the people around you. You want to be reasonable, right? And, and non-Christians, if you're here and you're working through this with us, that's great. Uh, just imagine what this is like. Your Christian friends are hearing this. Hey, come on, be reasonable. I mean, come on out and do this with us. It's not that bad. Like, don't take it so seriously. So, of course, you're asking them to do that. At the same time, they're also hearing, hey, you say you're a Christian, but you do this stuff. Are you, is this real for you, or are you a hypocrite? You're getting it from both sides. It's hard. You know, you're, you're called to be sort of normal like everyone else. At the same time, you're supposed to be different and authentic. And the reality is you cannot live for everyone in the world. You can't. Uh, you're supposed to love and serve, but you cannot live for their approval. Instead, the comprehensive Christian life means that you live for God's glory. You live for an audience of one. Latin phrase, quorum deo. You live before the face of God, realizing your Heavenly Father who loves you sees all that you do and you live for His glory. An imperfect life? Yes. You're not that you're supposed to be. You never will be what you're supposed to be. But you live for His glory all of your life. This requires a wholehearted response. You know, not just the actions. But love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is a high call. Far more than just be a nice person or be a good person. It also involves the fact that you have to contend for the faith. Verse 27, a little further down. Hoping that I may hear that you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now it's certainly the case that many, many people 
When they think of Christians, they think of everything that Christians are against. And then when they think of Christians, or even when Christians think about being Christians, they think, I am against those things. And certainly Christianity means, in some cases, you have to say no to things. But step number one is you have to say yes to something. You have to contend for something. And some of us by nature, and I'm actually one of them, I stand up and speak in front of you because I love it. But I'm not a contentious person that loves strife and conflict. Verse 30. I'm peaceable. I want to sit in the back of the room and chill and hang out with you and drink a mocha in front of the fireplace, Starbucks on a rainy day. This tells me that I'm a Christian. I have to live a comprehensive life where I contend for something. And the reality is, we're always, all of us are always contending for something. We are all for something. It sort of leaks out of us. You know, if you don't know what that is, just ask your roommates or your family. You're all about sports. You're a Phillies fan. Um, or you're a hockey fan, and it just comes out of you. Or you love politics. Or whatever the case may be, you just exude it. You cannot help. You're in love with someone, and you can't help talking about them. It just sort of oozes out of you. You contend for it. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing. It's just the way we are. We contend for things all the time. We argue for them. We believe strongly in them. We want other people to know it's important. It's good. If you're in a room tonight and you're a Christian, do people around you know that you're a Christian? Do you contend for it at all? I mean, would they even know? Or would they simply know because of all the things you're against? Like, oh, Oh, you're the most boring person I know, and you're against everything. You're pretty negative. You must be a Christian. <laughs> Do they know that you're a Christian because you are for peace, justice, restoration? That you are for the reconciliation of broken relationships? That you are for people coming to forgiveness? Do they know what you're for? That you're for God's glory? Contending, friends, requires courage. It's in here. You have to be brave. We're not naturally brave. So we are, the Christian life is comprehensive, all of our life. It involves contending for something. And lastly, it's corporate. And this is good. I think all these things are good. They're all sort of natural, but we tend to pervert them. Uh, corporate. And the corporate nature of the Christian life is shot through this whole text. Um, it actually begins in the third word. Only let your manner of life. And we have a way, because we're such individuals in America, I mean, strongly individualistic. Let me read that. We simply assume he's talking about just me personally. Only let your manner. And you think, he's talking to me. Well, he is talking to you. But actually, that, that you is plural. Actually, every you in this thing is plural. He's saying, this is where the South is good, only let y'all's manner be worthy. And it's y'all all the way through. Implied is that the Christian life is about us. But there's, a, there's an us-ness to the Christian life that should characterize almost everything we do. It's the corporate nature of the Christian life. And by corporate, I don't mean business suit and tie and uh, white-collar crime. I mean, instead, the body. It's what corporate means. Uh, there should be a fellowship, a body, nature to everything that we do. And it should be beautiful. Now, it's certainly hard. But it should be beautiful. Paul has to argue with them here in 2.1. We're supposed to strive side by side. You can't really contend by yourself. I mean, you can, but you usually get shut down pretty quickly. Uh, side by side. We're supposed to do that together. Uh, the comprehensive nature of the Christian life. Only let your manner, all of us, all of us being comprehensive, contending together. 
And lastly, the corporate nature comes through in 2.1. We're supposed to be, look at these words, they're beautiful. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from Him, uh, affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's an expression of the unity of the Christian body that we often long for. All of us long for it, even though they're not Christians, but we don't often experience. And we look for this kind of unity and fellowship all over the place. Some of us played team sports, not because we love the sport, but because we love the team. I ran cross country and hated every minute of it. Every minute of running, except for when I won, which I almost never did in cross country. I hated it. But I love the run. I love the team, the camaraderie. Love the bus rides and the goofing off and the skipping practices and running through the fields when we should be doing something else. The team was just great, man. And we look for that all over the place. We join fraternities and sororities for it. We look into clubs for it. We find things of common interest and we explore them because we want to experience this. We're made to live with one another in close relationships. Christianity is the same way all the way through. It's supposed to be corporate. It's hard. It requires a genuine humility that we don't have. We really want it, but there's a problem. And it goes with us everywhere we go. And it always subverts our desire for community. And that problem is me, us, my selfish ambition. We'll talk about it next week. We never experience community the way we want because every individual in the group is by nature selfish (laughs) and has ambition. And there are certainly some gradations and exceptions. But for the most part, it's never what it's supposed to be. Because we're not who we're supposed to be. And we need to have, verse 3, humility to consider other people more important than ourselves. We'll never have the kind of corporate fellowship and life together that we're supposed to have. But in the end, putting us all together, the Christian life is uncommonly beautiful. It is one of integrity, of wholeness. All of your life lived for God's glory. Of contending for something, being positive, having a purpose. Doing it bravely. Doing it with others. And fellowship together. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I'm talking, some, I'm talking to you that are Christians that grew up in the church. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, even in a little bit. It is absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. It's our, it's our hope that our group would become more and more like this. No group has this perfectly. No church has this perfectly. We pray God makes us more and more like this. Well, how do we get there? How do we become like this? And uh, what we have to do is embrace the uncommon logic of Christianity. And I say the uncommon logic of Christianity because there's a common religious logic that produces not the uncommon Christian life, but something rather ugly. The common religious logic would read 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And read it this way. God is good. I am not. Therefore... Let your manner... Ah, I'm supposed to be better. My manner of life has to be better. I have to be worthy. I have to work hard. I have to become a better, more worthy person. That'll fix it. That's what I need. That is common religious logic. And that is what's hardwired into our sinful natures. We think if God's going to be happy with us, we have to be better people. Different people, maybe. We have to become better. We must perform. We must be worthy of the gospel. We must perform to even deserve the good news. And uh, that raises the point that Martin Luther asked 400 years ago. Where's the good news of that good news? How is that good? How is that beautiful? There's nothing good about that. 
And when Luther was struggling with this, with God's righteousness and being worthy of the gospel, he had this moment of expression where he, he realizes he's called to love God. He says, love God? Sometimes I hate him. Because if your understanding of Christianity is I must perform and become a better person or God will not love me and accept me, you will be a resentful person. You will be an angry person. You will not love your father because you will feel like he does not love you. And that is the common religious logic. And it's not good news. And it's not Christianity. The uncommon gospel logic reads the text like this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. God is holy and good. I'm not. Let's see, what do I... Gospel of Christ. That's the answer. Manner of life, it fits somewhere later in the story. It's part of the equation, but it's later. It's the remainder. It's what's left over. It comes at the end. It's important. But the answer to how I am in a right relationship with God is the good news of Jesus and what he's done. Not my manner of life. That's to be in response to the good news. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of Christ, is that God has become what I am, a person. In order to be what I am not, a perfect person, in order to do what I deserved, die for my sin, in order to make me what he is, righteous. That's the good news of Jesus. That's the gospel. And not my performance. That's good news. The good news of Christ. What he's done. And like, not me. And like most good news, you don't earn it. Like, you didn't really do anything. Good news happens out there. And you hear about it. And you believe it. That's what makes it good. And that's what it's saying here. It's what it's saying in chapter 1, verse 29. It's being granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should believe. It also says suffer. We've talked about that. It's part of your story in the future and even now. But also to believe. Granted. It's a gift. You don't deserve this. You didn't earn anything. It's good news. You receive it. Christ has done something for you. Something you couldn't do. You can't earn it. You can't perform well enough. He performs perfectly for you. It's called grace. You receive it by faith. So, that's the uncommon gospel logic. And there's another thing here that's pretty amazing. It's that you're made a citizen. And that's in verse chapter 1, verse 27. It's hard to see because it's not in the, we don't have the original language. Um, but it actually reads something like, Let your life or behavior be worthy of a citizen. Or let your life as a citizen be worthy. It's, it's actually strongly political language and not like angry, fiery, manipulative rhetoric, which is what we're used to from everybody right now at this time of the year. Uh, but it is political language in the sense that it is recognizing that the Philippians are a Roman colony and they're really proud of it. They really are. They're like some backwater, they're a nice city, some backwater place. And Rome said, you're all our citizens. We are. That's great. Rights and responsibilities of citizens. It's a big deal. And Paul's saying, hey, you guys think you're nobodies. God says you're in. You're citizens. You've been brought in because of what Christ has done by faith. You're sons and daughters, and you've been made citizens. Now live that way. You've already been made citizens. 
You're in. Are you aware how many people annually risk their lives to try to sneak into this country so they can enjoy the rights and responsibilities that we enjoy as citizens? Happens like every day. Some family climbs onto a raft, tries to cross the ocean so they can land here and enjoy the rights and responsibilities that you enjoy. What did you do to get it? Nothing. You were born here. No shame in that. Nothing wrong with that. You're already in. And in the same way, Paul is saying, you're a citizen. Enjoy it. Let's try and get other people in. That's why you have to contend for the faith. Yeah. A little less um, sober example of this, and a little silly, and one that actually does date me. Um, So before Mike Myers disappeared, first made Dr. Seuss movies, he made Austin Powers movies. Before he made Austin Powers movies, he actually made really good movies. And one of those, uh, one of those was So I Married an Axe Murderer, which none of you have seen. We should make see that. And another one was called Wayne's World. So who's actually saying Wayne's World? Okay, like three of you. Okay, almost all guys and one lady. So anyway, Mike Myers, who's still around, and Dana Carvey, who seems to have completely disappeared from the face of the planet. If anyone finds Dana Carvey, let the rest of us know. Anyway, they're sort of like burned out metalheads from the '80s. They have never grown up, live in their parents' basement, love music. And anyway, they get free backstage passes to see Alice Cooper. Now, Alice Cooper was a famous rock artist of the 70s and 80s, famous for embracing the theme of death all the time in his scenes, in his movies. He actually used to bite the heads off of reptiles uh, on stage. Actually, Alice Cooper's a Christian. I think he still does that stuff. Uh, but I don't doubt the sincerity of his, of his testimony. Anyway, they get backstage passes to meet Alice Cooper. And this really sh- surreal scene happens. They walk in. Alice notices them. And they say, is this okay? Can we come in? Is this cool? Yeah, come on in. Oh, we're sorry to bother you, Mr. Cooper. We just wanted to tell you how much we enjoyed your show. Oh, thanks. Uh, like, we're not mental or anything. You don't have to be worried. And then they... Uh, being sort of awkward about it all, not knowing what to say, they say, uh, so, do you come to Milwaukee often? And, uh, <laughs> and then Alice Cooper says, well, I'm a regular visitor to Milwaukee, but Milwaukee's had many famous visitors. French missionaries came here in the 1600s to trade with the Indians, and Milwaukee, an Indian name, is actually pronounced Milwaukee, Algonquin for the beautiful land. <laughs> At which point, uh, they're like, okay. That's nice. Uh, we're going to be going now. At which point, Alice Cooper says, and this is important, no, stick around. Hang out with the crowd. At which point, they say, okay, cool. Yeah, we'll stick around. Us and Alice Cooper. At which point, they drop on the floor and start saying, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. Now, there's a couple things there that make them feel not worthy. A couple things. One, they admire Alice Cooper in a way that's completely not healthy. But two, if Alice Cooper had not invited them in and made them feel welcome, they would have never felt that way. And what we have as Christians is a backstage pass into communion with the Godhead. We do not deserve to be there. We did not do anything to get there. It is not our worthiness, but Christ, that gives us the pass there. 
and we've been welcomed in as citizens. And our response should be, we're not worthy, he is. In such a way that we are compelled to that kind of worship and loyalty. So the Christian life should be marked by that reality. By a compulsion to be near the worthy one. The one that welcomes us in. The one that loves us. Think for a minute. What's your motivation? What's your compulsion? If you're motivated by religious logic, your life is going to be characterized by moments of pride, I'm doing well, or despair, I'm not. And also moments of resentment. I'm performing for you, God, but you're not giving me what you want, what I want. Anger. Bitterness. Is that what's in you? Is it because you have gospel logic or because you have religious logic? If you've embraced gospel logic, you realize, I'm not worthy. I didn't do a thing to get this. In fact, if I got what I really deserved, I'd be in real trouble. But Christ has performed for me and brought me in behind where I do not deserve to be so that I can know him and experience the fellowship with him. I've been made a citizen, a son and daughter. I've been given a cause. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And when you understand that, and only when you understand that, I think, will you begin to ask, how can I live a life worthy of Christ? Before you understand gospel logic, you will always be trying to be good enough. It will never be a joy. It will always be a chore. It will always be drudgery. It will often be painful. It will never feel like a love affair. When you understand the gospel, it will be glad service. It will be close communion. It will be sweet. Over that summer, I watched Dan slowly change. He began to confess these things and let them be known. And what also came out is, you know, he wasn't a bad kid. I mean, he did some really stupid stuff. I didn't tell you half the stupid stuff he did. Um, but it was actually his efforts to be good that made him this way. He grew up with an understanding of Christianity that you had to be perfect, really good. You had to perform well. I think this was more caught than taught. He just got the impression. It's actually because of that understanding that he cheated. He knew he couldn't be perfect, but everyone expected him to be perfect. So what did he have to do? He had to cheat to get by. And like everyone that embraces this kind of legal, religious logic, you try to perform really well, and meanwhile on the side you nurse all your addictions to make yourself feel better because you're miserable. But over the summer, he began to realize, that's not Christianity. You're telling me that's not Christianity? No, that's not Christianity. Oh, what's Christianity? It's what Jesus does for you. A righteousness from the outside for you. He takes your sin and guilt and death, gives you his righteousness and brings you in as a daughter. And that man began to slowly change and melt. And I watched him slowly give away things. He became a joy to be around. The corporate nature of the Christian life. He loved us. We loved him. It was wonderful. He began to contend for the faith. He stood up in front of a bunch of strangers and basically said, this good-looking guy, I've really messed up a lot of things in my life. But Jesus has been good to me. And he began to express his newfound faith and content for it. He began to wrestle with the comprehensive nature of the Christian life. I've messed up everything. I've got to go back, tell my girlfriend I've been unfaithful. Do I have to go back and tell the school that I've been cheating for four years? 
Do I have to tell them that janitors helped me do it? Do I have to get people fired? Now, there are no easy answers to that. But he began to wrestle with that. A year and a half later, I watched that man get married, begin to have children, serve as a pastor, go to seminary. Gospel logic changed his life, set him free, gave him an uncommonly beautiful Christian life. And that's something that's available to every single one of us, not based on our performance, but when we embrace the logic of Christianity. Jesus for us. Okay, let's pray together.